TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we're going to sign up for Camp Cadet, get ready for a fundraiser with Griffin Pond Animal Shelter, find the perfect trainer to help you with your pet. We'll also find out about Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day this Wednesday. And starting us off, Dr. Matthew O'Connor, cardiologist in the Cardiac Center and the medical director of the Heart Failure and Transplant Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's Heart Month, and he talks to us about babies born with congenital heart disease. Dr. O'Connor, it's my pleasure to have you here, and uh, we're talking this month. It's Heart Month, and so many times people don't think about children when it comes to heart problems. And you're here to tell us about innovations in cardiac care. What are some of those? Yeah, so uh, you're right, absolutely, that uh, it's not the first thought of uh, folks, but what we call congenital heart disease, which are, you know, uh, conditions where children are born with heart abnormalities are quite common. Uh, about one in every 120 babies um, has a heart defect. Fortunately, most of those are pretty minor, but about a quarter of them will have significant disease um, uh, that requires surgery or some other treatment in the first year of life. Um, here at CHOP, we are working on a lot of different ways to uh, make those interventions Interventions less invasive. Uh, we are working on things to uh, make these kids have better outcomes. Um, we are trying to push the envelope with uh, getting these kids, uh, you know, back to normal uh, life and uh, activities as quickly as possible. Is there any reason why children are born with the congenital heart defects? It's, uh, there's no one cause. Um, uh, most of the time, it's what we call sporadic, meaning we uh, there's no identified cause, whether it's an environmental cause or a genetic cause. Um, in some rare cases, uh, more, more rare cases, it's actually a genetic abnormality that sometimes runs in families. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it, we don't really know why. Um, and there uh, is research ongoing to try to identify uh, some of those causes, but it's still uh, uh, quite early. So would there be a way that parents might know that there's going to be or potentially could be a problem? Well, yeah. Fortunately, nowadays, actually, most congenital heart defects are, are identified um, during pregnancy. Uh, so most of the, almost all, actually, of the major congenital heart defects can be identified on a prenatal ultrasound um, uh, that uh, all women go through in their second trimester of pregnancy. And if an abnormality is identified, they get referred for further uh, cardiac evaluation. Um, and that makes a difference because, one, it helps the family prepare for, um, you know, the the uh, the uh, consequences of having a child with a congenital heart defect, but it also improves the outcomes of the children. We know that if those children are born in a hospital that can manage the congenital heart defect and get early treatment, uh, it makes a, a much better uh, chance of having a good outcome. 
such a scary thing for parents to hear such a diagnosis when the child is still in vitro. And are there things that you can even do before the child is born in vitro in order to maybe help them for coming up to be born? Uh, in general, uh, uh, the answer is is no, other than just making sure that the mother's getting good prenatal care uh, and that the, uh, the fetus is being monitored carefully for the development of any problems, say, with growth um, or uh, problems with other organ systems that we sometimes can see. There are some very rare uh, instances when you can actually perform uh, intervention on the fetus um, in the womb uh, for congenital heart defects, uh, but that's quite rare. The most important thing is just identifying, counseling the family, preparing the family, and making sure that the pregnancy is healthy as possible uh, so the baby will be uh, in good shape as possible when, when the baby arrives. All right. Let's take children who may be still young, but a little bit, uh, actually, they're born and maybe they're even still infants. Are there things available for children in that age group where things may be found after they're born? Yeah, so that's um, uh, that's also uh, something we see is that uh, you know there are some, some generally more minor heart defects that are picked up after birth. Another uh, uh, thing that we uh, uh, quite commonly see are things called cardiomyopathies or heart failure. This is where the heart muscle, uh, either through an infection or a genetic abnormality, um, uh, starts to pump uh, not well. Uh, and uh, children can get heart failure as well. Uh, and so we uh, here at CHOP, we uh, take care of a number of children who develop heart failure uh, and cardiomyopathies. They have normal hearts, um, but they uh, develop heart failure. And so we uh, have a very active program to uh, manage these kids with medications, heart transplants, uh, devices called ventricular assist devices to help the heart uh, function, um, a very important part of our program. Is there a certain age where parents should really, really start to pay more attention, maybe ask their pediatrician, for example, when parents take their children to the dentist for the first time, they might still not even have teeth, but they're, you know, they're starting to think about that. It's something that you just wouldn't think of in a child, Dr. O'Connor, where my child's going to have a heart problem at not even two years old. Yeah, fortunately, it's still that that uh, situation remains relatively rare. Uh, and so, for a child who's getting uh, who's healthy on the outside and doing all the normal things of childhood, and who's getting their regular checkups, and the pediatrician or family doctor is not identifying any problems, parents should be reassured that uh, the likelihood of a heart problem uh, in that scenario is really, really rare. Um, but certainly, um, if, if a pediatrician hears a heart murmur. Uh, or if a child starts developing symptoms that uh, you know can't be explained, uh, can't be explained by a normal childhood illness, uh, that's when it's, it's time to, to refer to to a cardiologist. But I, I would stress again that fortunately it's very very rare um, for for that to be the case for generally healthy children. All right, Dr. O'Connor. So what do parents do in order to keep their kids' hearts healthy? And hopefully they might even get some good advice from their own, too. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a great question. I think uh, uh, there are probably two things that come to mind most uh, uh, importantly. One is a healthy diet. 
Um, and those healthy eating habits uh, often get set during childhood that, you know, kind of accompany us for the rest of life. Uh, and so making sure that the kids are getting a well-balanced diet that's low in added sugars, low in high saturated fats, uh, low amount of processed foods, um, those, those heart-healthy habits uh, make a difference uh, over many decades of life and they start in childhood. And I can't stress enough the importance of regular physical activity. Um, you know, organized uh, childhood sports are great, but not every child has to do that. As long as they're getting outside and playing and, and, and being active, um, that in conjunction with a, a heart-healthy diet uh, reaps dividends over the entire lifespan. Uh, and those habits often start during childhood. Well, so there's, it's never too early to, to focus on those things. I was going to say there's there's never enough information. There's never too many times that you can say all these great things in order to make sure that the word gets out there. So where can our listeners go in order to find more information, not only on the congenital heart disease, but also on just the healthy aspects of keeping your heart well? Yeah, so, uh, you know, two sources I, I, I would uh, direct you to. One is, is our website, which is heart.chop.edu. It uh, has information about congenital heart defects, but also about overall heart health. Uh, and then the American Heart Association, which is heart.org, um, is a wonderful resource for, uh, you know, healthy heart living throughout the entire lifespan. Um, and families uh, can get really uh, up-to-date and current and uh, useful practical information information on how to uh, keep their kids and loved ones uh, healthy, whether they're children or older adults. Well, Dr. O'Connor, I said when I met you this morning that you have a lot of folks from Northeast Pennsylvania who travel down to CHOP. And if you're walking through the hall and someone says, hey, Dr. O'Connor, I heard you on the radio, at least you'll know what they were talking about. Well, I, I, indeed, I know many patients from uh, from your neck of the woods, and uh, we're very uh, privileged to take care of them. So thank you so much. Thanks to Dr. Matthew O'Connor from CHOP in Philadelphia. Wednesday, Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day. To tell us about it, Lindsay Clark, Senior VP of Health Education and Advocacy, Alliance for Aging Research. Lindsay, it is an opportunity for you to get the word out about heart valve disease. And I don't think a lot of people would think about that when they talk about the heart. So why is this so important? Well, that's exactly why it's so important. And first of all, thank you for having me on to talk about this. It's really important. Um, And it's so important because people aren't talking about it. They don't know about it. Um, At the Alliance for Aging Research, we did a survey a few years ago and found that three out of four Americans know little to nothing about heart valve disease. And that's despite the fact that it impacts around 11 million Americans. So it's something that we need to know about and we don't. Typically, when we think about heart disease, I think a lot of people think about heart attacks. They think about congestive heart failure, and they're not thinking about valve disease. So we established this day on February 22nd during American Heart Month to really come together with our partners and raise awareness about this disease. When we're talking about that, then, are there things that we should be looking for? Because you mentioned heart attacks. That's usually the big thing. So what would we be looking for in particular when it comes to heart valve disease? Well, we can watch for the symptoms, right? And the symptoms can overlap with other types of heart disease. Um, But we actually have a handy mnemonic to remember. Listen. Um, So listen to your heart. And um, the L is for lightheadedness of feeling faint. Um, the I is an irregular heartbeat. So you might sense a heart flutter, sometimes even chest pain. The 
the S is for shortness of breath, and that can happen even if you're lying down or have not really engaged in only light activity. People might feel tired, the T, um, even after they've had plenty of sleep. Uh, they might experience edema, which is the swelling of the ankles or feet. And then the N is really just not feeling like oneself or finding that you're missing out on daily activities. So people really need to pay attention to their symptoms. Um, if something feels wrong, they should go see their providers and get their hearts listened to. Is there any particular group of people, age of people that would be more uh, more involved in any of this? Because, again, when you mention heart attack, it just seems like it takes a wide variety of people in. So where would this fit in? Well, it's a really good question. There's a number of risk factors for heart valve disease. The most common is age. So we know that one in 10 people over the age of 75 suffer from moderate to severe heart valve disease. We also know that there are certain infections that can impact the heart. It's not as common in the U.S., but it can happen that can cause valve disease. There's certain radiation and chemotherapies for certain cancers that can damage the valve. But then we also know that some of those things we already know contribute to other types of heart, heart disease um, also contribute to heart valve disease. So things like uncontrolled blood sugar, um, uncontrolled blood pressure and uh, high cholesterol, obesity, those are risk factors that can really contribute to the development of heart valve disease. And what can be done? Because, again, there's so much talk about heart attacks and you just mentioned the fact that there's a lot of environmental issues that go on. So if someone is to the point where they say this is what is affecting your heart, what can a medical professional do for that? Well, it's a good question. And I I thought you were going to ask about prevention because I think it's really important that people understand that things like cholesterol and high blood pressure and high blood sugar can contribute. They can really manage that, right? But with age being the major risk factor, sometimes there's nothing you can do. And if you find yourself with a diagnosis of valve disease, the good news is that it can usually be successfully treated in patients of all ages. Um, Typically, it requires a valve repair or replacement. And the way that they do that is going to vary from patient to patient. But there are some pretty um, minimally invasive options out there that people may qualify for. And people can return often to their quality of life uh, before the valve disease developed once they have the repair or replacement. And you're right. Talk about some of the preventative things. And there are things such as high blood pressure. That's also another one that um, many people are affected by. Absolutely. And it can contribute to a variety of um, heart heart problems. And so really knowing your risk factors, managing what you can um, is really important. But it's also critical that people get their hearts listened to regular, regularly, excuse me, so that they should be going to their healthcare professional, making sure that their heart's being listened to with a stethoscope check. It's a really simple way for them to detect if there's an irregular heart sound or a heart murmur. And then if they find that something sounds uh, not quite right, they'll probably refer to um, other heart tests to to confirm the diagnosis. And when we were talking about that, this, I assume, can probably be picked up if you're having other testing done, say, for example, an EKG or uh, an electrocardiogram or a stress test. Absolutely. They, it might be something that they're looking for something else and they pick up the valve disease. Exactly. But it can also happen in people who don't have other problems. Um, and so just because something else, you're not already at the cardiologist having something done doesn't mean you shouldn't be going to have your heart listened to on a regular basis. You mentioned murmur. 
And that's something that we've heard about for so long. And, and there's also, you know, so many different things that come with that. So can you give us a little bit more of information? It says a murmur is detected in your heart. So what does that exactly mean? Well, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't get really deep into it. But what I can tell you is that that murmur is that irregular sound. So when the heart is working appropriately and it's contracting and squeezing and and pumping the blood through the heart as it should, it makes one sound, right? But then if a valve becomes damaged and it's allowing blood to leak um, or it's not allowing as much blood to pass through as it should, it's going to create a different heart sound. And that's what they hear with the stethoscope. Well, that explains a lot then, because again, people, I don't know whether they always, you know, we we hear so much about the, you know, the typical heart sound and to be listening for something else, because I know there was a time when mitral valve was was very pronounced and that's a heart valve. So again, you know, that Mm -hmm. might, and that, that in particular was with women. Because uh, I know they told me I had mitral valve prolapse many, many years ago. So when it comes to these things now, Lindsay, are there things that people should be doing and where can they get more information? Right. Well, they definitely should watch their risk factors, understand the symptoms and get their hearts checked. For Valve Disease Day on February 22nd, we're recommending that everyone visit us at valvediseaseday.org to see how they can get involved. Um, But one thing in particular is we have a screening challenge this year. So we're asking people to go out, um, either get their hearts listened to or make an appointment to do it. Um, And then share on social media that you're doing it. You know, take a picture in the waiting room or on the way to the doctor, maybe of your calendar showing the appointment and share it on social media. Show the people that follow you that you take it seriously and that they need to take it seriously as well. And hopefully together we can really raise awareness about this disease. Can you give us that website one more time? Absolutely. It's valvedisease.day.org. And people can also find us on social media at valvedisease.day. Thanks again to Lindsay Clark, Alliance for Aging Research and Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day this Wednesday. Coming up next, heading to the pediatric dentist on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Dr. Amir Morsi, President of the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, has tips for National Children's Dental Health Month. The American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry recommends that all children be seen by a dentist by their first birthday, uh, which to many parents seems like awfully young, um, but it's really critical to kind of get that early start. Um, first, identify any problems as early as possible and, and avoid them kind of getting any larger, but also really kind of talk to parents about what they need to know about diet, brushing, fluoride, Uh, all those things you need to know to prevent cavities in your children. So let's start with all of those different things. When we're talking about brushing, are we actually seeing teeth if we start somebody off going to the dentist at one? Yeah, you know, the first baby teeth typically come in around age six months. Uh, Sometimes earlier, our daughter, her first teeth came in at four months. Um, And uh, yeah, parents ask, well, you know, what are you going to do with my nine-month-old in the dental office? Um, you know, we, we certainly do an exam. It's usually kind of right in the parent's lap. But we spend a lot of time talking about that. You know, what do you need to know um, about how to prevent cavities, but also things like uh, thumb habits, pacifier habits, teething, all the other things you need to know to care for your child's oral health. 
Is that something that, again, if the teeth you notice are coming in and there is something that doesn't exactly look right, is it possible that they can correct themselves through the throughout the growth process of the child? Absolutely. That's And that's the good news. Usually if children stop in that age range, kind of three to four, things just self-correct. The teeth kind of go, find their natural position again. The jaws kind of adjust. Much later than that, then the likelihood of things self-correcting is less, and you might end up um, needing some orthodontics or braces down the road. There's always that, okay, there might be a cavity. So what is the course of treatment? It, does it have, does the tooth have to be saved? Well, we, we hear that a lot. You know, they're, they're just baby teeth. They're going to fall out anyway. So if they get a cavity, um, what's the big deal? It, baby teeth are there for a reason. And uh, ideally, we should, they should be preserved as much as possible. Cavities are not inevitable. Uh, they are preventable. A lot of parents think, oh, it's just kind of a uh, rite of passage. Ideally, we prevent them from starting to begin with. That's why that um, early visit before age one, we can really start um, really good habits to prevent them from starting. Or if we notice one just kind of beginning, we now have some tools that can stop that cavity in its tracks um, or even sometimes reverse it. That's another important reason to kind of get in and see your pediatric dentist early. If it does actually need a filling, there's a whole host of different ways we can do it now that really um, reduce the amount of stress and reduce the amount of uh, pain and fear involved. I certainly is not like a lot of parents remember their dental visits. So what are some of the things that have changed in pediatric dentistry? A lot of what we do now is really um, uh, customized to the family, both the parents and, and the patients, um, and taking things very slowly, step by step. We make sure everyone knows what's going on. The child uh, doesn't have any surprises. Um, we do a lot of techniques where we there's distractions. Often practices have music or videos children can watch. In most cases, children just need to have a little time to get settled in and are really comfortable. In our practice, we have children start crying because they don't want to leave the dental office. We, we make it so fun and um, so enjoyable that um, they really enjoy their experience. When we're talking about the care at home, are there things that are that are changing there as well? Yes, and there are two really important things to focus on at home. One is diet. And it's not all about sugar and candy and cookies, but really what I tell parents is the more time any food or drink goes in your mouth, the more cavities your child will get. And it can be nutritious things, a bread, milk. You should be eating all those things. But if you're constantly grazing and nibbling and sipping all day, that's really what causes cavities. Um, the other is brushing, brushing with a fluoride toothpaste. As soon as those first teeth come in, for the young kids, just a smear until, and then about age three, uh, amount of toothpaste the size of a pea. Um, but twice a day, first thing is in the morning, right after breakfast, and last thing before bed, and no rinsing with water after brushing. Um, that ends up just washing off a lot of that fluoride that you spend all that time putting on. Um, ideally, you want to brush for two minutes, spit out the excess toothpaste, and be on your way. Rinsing with water afterwards can dilute out that fluoride that's the key ingredient in toothpaste. Some kids who have high risk for cavities, either because um, 
of their history or the type of bacteria or saliva they have, they may need a, a prescription level for a toothpaste, or they may need other kinds of mouth rinses. Uh, another really good reason to see your pediatric dentist who can help you kind of customize your prevention plan. Where can people go in order to get more information besides, of course, seeing their awesome dentist? The American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry has a wonderful website, mychildrensteeth.org. Thanks, Dr. Amir Morsi, President, American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Are you ready? We're signing up for Camp Cadet. Pennsylvania State Police Trooper Anthony Petrosky, troop in Hazleton, now joins us with details of the program for cadets in their coverage area. I can't believe it's already time. Camp Cadet registration is open for 2023? It is, and we're glad it's open. You know, we had camp last year, but the two years prior to that, due to the pandemic, we didn't have Camp Cadet. So it's good to get back in the swing of things. This is going to be our second year in a row having camp after the break of the pandemic, and we're looking forward to it. Camp Cadet, Troop and Camp Cadet, is going to be July 16th through the 21st, 2023. Our camp is always held at Penn State Hazleton. Registration is open. People can go on our website, troopncampcadet.com. Turn out the registration. They can print out the application, mail it to us at Hazleton here, and we will process it and set up interviews for later in the spring. And who would be eligible to go to Camp Cadet? So our camp, Troop N Camp Cadet, takes kids ages 12 to 14 years old. And those are kids who reside in Troop N's coverage area, which is Lower Luzerne, Carbon, Columbia, and Monroe County. So anybody can apply. And sometimes not every 12-year-old gets into camp just because it's a one-time deal. So if somebody applies and they're 14, that's the last chance they can have to, to go to camp. So they get first preference. So if a 12-year-old doesn't get accepted this year, they go to the top of the list for next year. So, you know, if somebody doesn't get in this year, please don't be discouraged. We'll keep your application on file and you'll be at the top of the list for next year. And for people who are hearing this, and there there are probably some out there who are just starting to get kiddos in that age range and, and thinking about it. So can you give us a little bit of the exactly what happens there, who's involved, what they do? I mean, when you think about camp with the Pennsylvania State Police, Come on, Trooper Petrosky, any fun at all? The entire week is fun. And, and, and this is a week where kids learn about themselves. They learn what it takes to be a police officer because this, this camp, this six-day camp is a small version of the State Police Academy. Now, our academy is six months. This is six days. So we break it down age-specific, and basically it's a mini academy. So we get up at... 5.30 in the morning, we run, we work out at 6 a.m. We go to breakfast. After breakfast, they got to clean themselves up, get ready for the day, which consists of hands-on interactions, presentations from different law enforcement agencies, and pretty much the entire week, they see every asset within the Pennsylvania State Police that has to offer. They see our helicopter, our canine. They process a crime scene. They do their own traffic stops. They have room inspections. You know, it's, it's a very, it's strict, but you know, if you want a career in law enforcement, this is the camp for you because it shows you exactly what it takes to be a state trooper. And we've talked about Camp Cadet in the past, and I think one of the most interesting things and one of the most positive things about it is that you have the kids coming now and they come back to you later when they're older and tell you how much the experience has helped them. 
it's really neat to see these kids transform, especially later on in life, right? So a lot of times, kids that have gone through Camp Cadet are now working with us as troopers. And that's really neat to see that transformation. And even ones who don't go into law enforcement, maybe it's Camp Cadet who makes them realize that they don't want that career. That's okay, too. You know, if somebody just wants to challenge themselves, this is the camp. But it's always neat to see kids, adults later on and say, yeah, I went through camp. That was awesome. I loved it. It taught me a lot about myself. You know, it taught me dedication, hard work, being motivated. And that's really good to hear because this camp has been around since the 80s. And this is something that we want to carry on as a tradition, this camp. And, you know, keep doing a great job. It's, it's law enforcement run. We are there the entire week with the kids. Um, state police troopers and municipal officers are part of Troop and Camp Cadet. It's just a great experience. And the other thing is, and since you mentioned the fact that it started back in the 80s, so many things have changed. Now you have all of these different communication areas, and maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, because that's something that when you're talking about going to Camp Cadet, you got to leave them home. Yeah, and that's typically the hardest thing for the campers. And so this camp is, is physically difficult, right? So we work out, we run every morning, and for some campers, that's a totally new environment. But it's, it's also emotionally difficult, mentally difficult, because these kids, ages 12 to 14, they're away from their friends, their family. They stay there. They're there for the entire week. There's no cell phone. There's no video games. There's no TVs. None of those comforting communication-based devices that these kids are using every single day. It's all interaction. And so obviously if there was some sort of emergency there where the family needed to get a hold of us or vice versa, we will make that happen. But other than that, other than that, there's no communication. And, and that's because, again, it's based off of our academy, and that's how our academy is when we go there to, to become troopers. And so we're giving these kids a little taste of what it's like to be a trooper. But it's not a punishment. No, it's not a punishment. It's not. It's to show that, yes, those devices, they're great and they're fun, but they're not needed to get through life. They're not. And to be a police officer, you have to be able to communicate effectively. You have to know how to communicate with people. And that means talking, being in person. And so, you know, uh, the great thing about this week is every kid there is out of their comfort zone. Everything they do that week is entirely new. It's entirely different. It's a whole new environment. <clears throat> and most kids, by the end of the week, they don't want to go home. <laughs> they, they have such a good time. They enjoy it so much. They made new friends. They love the environment. They don't want to leave. And there are so many different things that are happening that are going. I mean, you even get the pool involved where you have divers coming in, right? Yes. Yeah, so they get to scuba dive in the pool at Penn State Hazleton campus. And it's a great experience because a lot of kids, maybe they've never had the chance to. And this is their opportunity to do scuba diving. It's it's really neat to see. They have a good time with that. Again, it's another great experience that they could check mark on their resume at, at a very young age. And when we're talking about getting ready for Camp Cadet, that means that we have to do it pretty soon because when is uh, registration over? So registration is open now. We'll be taking applications up until about March 31st uh, because then what we do is we schedule interviews. So every camper gets an interview before getting accepted into Troop N Camp Cadet. So we do an interview process. So applications have to be into 
State Police Hazleton by March 31st. Applications can be found on our website, which is troopncampcadet.com. They can print them out, mail them to State Police Hazleton, and we will process them. And then what happens as far as you get the information to go? Is that something that you uh, get a get a visit from a state police officer at your front door and get all the neighbors <laughs> excited? Or how does that work? So we will then reach out to the uh, to the parent or guardian of the child who applied and we will set up an interview and then they will. They will come to one of these state police barracks in Troop N, either Hazleton, Bloomsburg, Lee Heighton, Fern Ridge, or Stroudsburg for an interview. And then we will conduct the interview process and we will let them know right then during the interview whether they're accepted or not. Okay. And that's happening when for Troop N? Registration is open now. Applications are available. Print them off our website, mail them in to us. You have until March 31st. And camp is? Our camp, Camp Cadet, is July 16th through the 21st, 2023, and that's Troop N Camp Cadet. Looking forward to it. That was Trooper Petrosky with Troop N Hazleton Camp Cadet. Troop R Camp Cadet Dunmore will be from July 23rd through the 28th. Troop P Wilkesbury Camp Cadet from August 6th to the 11th. Up next, raising money for a shelter's medical fund and getting the right trainer for your pet on Special Edition. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Now on Special Edition, Sherry Crowley joins us. She's Development Director with the Griffin Pond Animal Shelter. She has your invitation to the upcoming first annual Second Chance Gala to raise money for the shelter's medical fund. Sherry, let's talk about this first annual Second Chance Gala. What's it all about? It's going to be a night of really fun. We have a live band named Pitch Perfect that will be performing. We'll have some high-end raffles, like a one-night stay in Atlantic City with two meal cards. We have some jewelry, some diamond earrings and a necklace, just some high-end, you know, stuff to raffle off. Dinner will be served with uh, Pier Street Grill. We'll have desserts. It's supposed to be a good time. When and where? It's going to be uh, March 18th. It'll be at the barn at Glistening Pond at 421 Pine Hill Road, Falls, PA. And if someone would like to get their tickets, how can they go about doing that? They could go right on our website at Griffin Pond Animal Shelter. There's a tab there that says Upcoming Events. Click on that, and it'll say um, Second Chance Gala. Click on that and fill out your ticket information. We also have sponsorship packages. We're still looking for sponsors for the event, if anybody's interested in sponsoring. Um, And that's all listed along with the tickets. And am I to understand that people better hurry up and do this because there's only so many tickets available? Correct. There's only 200 tickets available. Tickets are selling fast, so get your tickets. And this is Black Tie in honor of District Attorney Michael McGrath. So it's going to be quite an upscale evening. Correct. Very excited about having this uh, gala. 
are any of the pups or kitties or bunny rabbits going to be in their fine attire attending as well? Unfortunately, they won't be there. We're going to have a projector with a, a slideshow of all the animals at the shelter. Can we talk just a little bit about the animals? Because I know, especially those bunny rabbits, you've had such an influx. How are things going? It's going okay. We started out with 192 rabbits. We're down to about 86 rabbits. The adoptions are kind of slowing down now. But so if anybody's interested in an indoor rabbit, please fill out an application to adopt one. Uh, They're already spayed and neutered and they're ready, you know, for their forever home. And when we're talking about, especially when things like that happen, that's the reason for this particular event and so many others that you do, right? Correct. The 192 Rabbits was a huge undertaking financially for the shelter. Already since January 1st of 2023, we've taken in three emaciated dogs that needed severe medical attention. And that is really, when you when you think about it, the medical fund at Griffin Pond really gets put through its paces all year round. Yes, it does. Unfortunately, we're constantly having to replenish the medical fund because the money goes very quickly out, especially when we get like the 192 rabbits or, you know, animals that come in that need, you know, medical attention immediately. Of course, you want to have you also have wonderful volunteers. You were you even had bunny sitters from what I understand. We did. That's kind of died down too with the volunteers, but if anybody's interested in volunteering for with the bunnies, you can come any day of the week between 9:30 and 4. Um, you do have to be 18 years or older to volunteer with the bunnies. And that has to do with uh, insurance purposes with the shelter. If you wanted to volunteer just for a day for a couple of hours, Come on down. I want to make sure that everyone has all of the information. So, Sherry, I'm going to turn it over to you for the when, the where, the how, the who, the why. It's all yours. Well, thank you. We're happy to announce we're having our first annual Second Chance Gala. It'll be March 18th, 2023. It starts at 6 o'clock and runs to 10 o'clock that evening. And it's at the barn at Glistening Pond at 421 Pine Hill Road, Falls, Pennsylvania. You could get the tickets at Griffin Pond Animal Shelter's uh, website. Click on the upcoming events tab on the top of the page and it'll say uh, Second Chance Gala. Click on that and that's where you can get your tickets. Come on down to the Second Chance Gala, March 18th, 2023 from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. We look forward to seeing all of you. Thank you so much for your support. Jerry Crawley with the Griffin Pond Animal Shelter. Check it out, griffinpondanimalshelter.com. Now meet Brad Pfeiffer, Executive Director, Certified Council of Professional Dog Trainers. Whether you're a first-time pet parent or adding a new pup to your current family, he has the advice to find the right trainer that will make your pet's forever home a happy one. Brad, thank you for joining us. We're going to talk about something that is so important And that is training your dog because we all want to be good members of society, right? We certainly do. And dogs are such an intricate part of our life that one of the best things we can do for them is provide them the education they need to learn what's expected of them. Absolutely. And now that more places, which I'm thrilled about, are inviting you to bring along your pups when you're going out so that they can have some fun too and have new experiences, What would be some of the things that 
you as a trainer would say, and a lot of people think, well, it's only puppies, but it's not. It's older dogs as well. So what would you say would be the best places to start? Well, I would think that we'd start with a couple of things. And it's important to note that dogs need regular training throughout the first two or three years of their life because at each maturity point, you're going to be focusing on different things. You've got crate training and house training for a puppy. You've got socialization for a young dog. Uh, then you have basic obedience training uh, for the adolescent. Uh, and you're going to want to reaffirm some of that training as they go into adulthood. And so that first couple of years is really important that you put in the time and effort to really train the dog on the expectations that you have for them. And then depending on your lifestyle, if you're uh, someone who wants a very active lifestyle with their dog, they go hiking on the trail, they go uh, to patios and, 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 and uh, bars and, and restaurants and stuff with their dog, then you really want to focus a lot on the dog having positive experiences out and about. Socialization doesn't have to be flooding them with new information. It has to be exposure. And so making sure that they are going to a lot of different places, they're having good experiences um, when they're out, and that they're learning to look to you for direction. So when we stop, uh, we have the dog sit and look at us. Or if we stop and sit down at a, at a table, we have the dog lay down next to us, maybe like on a small mat, always focusing on you and your dog's experience out in public versus allowing them to maybe ping pong around and say hello to everyone and see every dog. It's really about the two of you and your relationship and making sure that you're teaching the dog, again, what are the expectations for them, right? You walk beside me down the street, you stop and sit when we you know, go to a crosswalk, you lay down at my feet when we're at a restaurant. You, all, you just want to create good habits, good patterns. How do you do that? And I know that there's probably a lot of our listeners who are saying, I know I've got the best dog in the world, but just like yeah. my Mia, she's great, but she likes to let everybody know she's there and let out some barks and she's very social. And and then if you correct them, some people say, oh, you're being mean. So what do you do? First and foremost, you've got to focus on the obedience commands, or a lot of trainers now are calling them cues. Things like sit and come and down and, and stay. Making sure that you have a vocabulary of uh, commands or cues that you can tell your dog uh, so they understand the expectation. Uh, and then from there, depending on the situation, if you have a dog that is a little reactive towards other animals or new people, you, you might need to work on some behavior modification. And so, you know, it'd be really important that owners look for a certified professional dog trainer knowledge assessed through the CCPDT or even a behavior consultant through the CCPDT if there are uh, undesirable behaviors like barking at other dogs or uh, barking at people who come in your home or out on a walk. Um, having a certified professional through our organization come into your home uh, will you know, give you the opportunity to work with someone who has demonstrated competence in our field they are receiving continuing education and they're being held accountable to our standards of practice and code of ethics. The other thing I've been reading a lot about lately is that there was always the treat or the click and then treat or something to that effect. And now I'm reading more that they're trying to get away from treats. So again, I know that we can get in touch with you folks, but sometimes you like to try to do things starting sure. at home. So what about that? There are a number of ways to uh, train a dog. There's a lot of ideas, methodologies out there. 
first and foremost, you want to make sure that you are always addressing your dog's uh, health and wellness. Make sure there's no underlying medical problems or, or uh, need for increased exercise or, or other outlets to uh, address behavior concerns. Uh, you want to focus on using positive reinforcement uh, to teach uh, necessary skills. And positive reinforcement might be treats, it might be toys, it might be play, uh, something that motivates the dog to want to listen, rewards the dog for good behavior. And then from there, uh, if there is a need for uh, any sort of correction or things like that, you can work with a professional to, to decide what the best plan is. But first and foremost, health and wellness, good environmental management to make sure the dog isn't rehearsing a bunch of behavior like barking at windows. Maybe the dog needs to go to the laundry room behind a crate when we are away from the house and putting the time in to uh, use the positive reinforcement. Again, treats or toys. Toys is also great. Uh, love and affection can be another uh, reinforcer for some dogs. Uh, to train necessary skills. And then, of course, we also have you, and you're working so hard, and you're giving treats, and everything's great. And then, just like with people, you go out into the public, and someone else is not exhibiting such good types of behavior. Ouch. So now it almost seems like all the training that you've done has kind of gone, woo, because all of a sudden you get the look like, well, wait a minute, if he or she is running around, why can't I? So how do you get the message across that just because the others are not necessarily being such good citizens right now that you still have to pay attention to me? It's important that you take the time to train your dog in a lot of different contexts because you're right. The environment outside of your home will often encourage your dog to exhibit behavior you don't want. People often say, well, I don't mind if she jumps up on me or someone else might be letting their dog run around off leash or run up to your dog. And so you take those opportunities to train your dog what to do when those events happen. You know, when, when uh, uh, a neighbor is walking up and saying, come on, Sophie, jump on me, you as the owner are responsible for telling Sophie to sit or taking a step away and having Sophie sit next to you and increasing space from that distraction. But it's important. We oftentimes train the dog most often in the context we need them to listen. So in the kitchen with their food bowl in our hand or in the backyard with uh, their toy or, or at the front door with the leash on, or sorry, the leash in our hand. And so we're oftentimes training them in the context we need them to listen. So they're learning patterns, but we don't place a priority on going to uh, the pet supply store to train skills or going to the kids' soccer game to train skills. And so we need to put um, uh, take the training on the road, if you will, and make sure we're applying it in a lot of different areas. I think one of the most interesting things and probably the key word that I saw when I was looking at the website that you have, patience. Dog training is not a difficult process. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's not always easy to uh, weave into our day-to-day, especially when you think that a lot of uh, owners, uh, it's it, their families with children or uh, two adults, they have different expectations for the dog. The dog can get a lot of mixed messaging. And so uh, it's, it's, um, it's not difficult, but it's not simple. And so I always encourage with my clients that we say, okay, what are your priorities? What is the first thing that we can all agree upon that we want and need the dog to, to know and do. And let's focus on tackling that piece, check that box, and then we can always add to the list of priorities. Um, and you've got to remember, you've got to keep it realistic, uh, keep your expectations realistic based on your dog's breed type, age, how much work you're putting into it, 
Uh, but dogs often are uh, a reflection of the work that we do. You know, what's our home like? How good are we at holding them accountable to our expectations? How good are we holding ourselves accountable to uh, training them? And so you got to be patient. It takes time. But a certified professional dog trainer through the CCPDT can help guide you through group dog training classes, private lessons, uh, board and train, day training. There's all sorts of training programs now that can really um, fit everyone's schedule or even budget. And so uh, we have our newly launched website, fetchtheanswer.com, and owners can go there and they can find a dog trainer in their area who's certified through our organization. And they can also find tips and resources for incorporating training and beginning training at home. What was that website one more time? Fetchtheanswer.com. Okay. Well, have there was there anything that we've left out in our discussion that you would like our listeners to know or just go over some of the main points that you think is important for us to take away? Yeah, I think the main points in the conversation are always work with a certified professional dog trainer, uh, knowledge assessed through the CCPT because they have demonstrated competence in the field. They're being held accountable to the standard of practice and code of ethics. Uh, it's important to note that dog training is an unlicensed profession. So anyone can self-identify as a dog trainer and come into your home and give you advice or solutions that may or may not be part of the best practices of our, of our industry. From there, be patient. Pick some small goals and focus on teaching your dog the things that you need him to know and be consistent with your expectations. You can actually make undesirable behavior worse by having inconsistent expectations. If you visit fetchtheanswer.com, you can find tips and resources for training your dog at home to begin the process and then also search the online trainer directory for uh, someone in your area who is certified through the CCPDT and we'll have a program or service that can get you started and give you some more support. Find out more from Brad Pfeiffer at fetchtheanswer.com. I'm Paula Degnan. Thank you for joining me on Special Edition. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 